This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. We are recording this episode on June 23rd, 2014. This is episode number 74, where we are going to be looking at Bong Joon-ho's sci-fi action film Snowpiercer. My name is Zach, and I'm joined today by Thomas Wishloff, who hosts the Big Kahuna Burger and Genre Conversation podcast, as well as writing for Sunset Rising Productions. Thomas, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Zach. Yeah, I do a lot of different things. I'm involved in about nine bazillion different projects. Well, I guess kind of running with that, um, since you're a first-time guest on the show, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, how you came to be interested in movies, and then how you fell into moving podcasting, which seems to be something that you're very passionate about? Definitely, yeah. Um when I was uh, 14, uh, I took a grade 9 film studies class, and I saw Memento for the first time. And I guess that was probably the moment that I put my finger on, is that was the moment where I wanted to watch more film. Because I remember after we finished that film in class, I was so amazed at how somebody could do something that would work backwards. And, I mean, as much as it's kind of a mainstream cliche kind of a thing mm-hmm. that a Christopher Nolan film is what got me into into film. That is what got me into film. I wanted to see more movies like Memento. I didn't want to go back and rewatch Memento a million times. I wanted to go back and uh, watch things like Memento and see more films and the world of cinema. And then I eventually started doing some research and I found a book called 1001 Movies See Before You Die. And I started picking titles out of there and would go back and watch them. And I eventually evolved to the point where I am now. When I was 16, I discovered the Directors Club podcast, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you've had Jim on this show before. Yeah, and, and uh, Patrick as well. Yeah. And Patrick, mm-hmm. right. And, had both, and you've been on their podcast. That's where I know you from, is from uh, David, the David Lynch episode is the one I remember mm-hmm. you being on. Um, and that I listened to that podcast, and I was kind of blown away by the idea of podcasting and the idea of a portable radio show that you could talk about movies on. And so it took a lot of like preparation and eventually I got uh, my four goofball friends to join me for a big kahuna burger podcast and um, that kind of fell apart because people moved away and didn't have much time so then I ended up starting Sunset Rising Productions with Umar Farouk and I write the movie section for there and I'm currently doing the genre conversation with uh, Caitlin Kaminga and Michael Morris both of whom are very fun people to podcast with because they both we all have different tastes. I'm more of the foreign art house person and they're both more uh, mainstream action. So it's very fun to balance off, balance off each other because I don't think everything is the worst thing ever. And I don't think everything is great either. So it's very fun to to deal with that. So now that show is the genre conversation kind of exclusively on YouTube or is it on iTunes as well? Or 
We're actually on iTunes. Um, I use Podomatic as my hosting site. So okay. I mm -hmm. things through Podomatic. We're on iTunes. Uh, Caitlin goes back and posts our audio, and we started like recording ourselves while we were talking, so we should have some actual live video coming soon, eventually. Um, and yeah, I basically, we've recorded five episodes that are on iTunes right now. Uh, most recently, we're going to be looking at a series in which we pick films that are bad for certain reasons, uh, and we've titled it Insults to Humanity. It's a running series. Uh, so we're looking at historically inaccurate films for this first go-round. And that's, I think we're doing Pearl Harbor, Patch Adams, and the one of the two animated Titanic movies. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so um, th those are the three we're doing for that. Um, yeah, you can find us on iTunes. That's the place to go search genre conversation, I guess. Probably the best thing to do. Is Memento still your favorite film to this uh, day? Yes, Memento is still my favorite movie, um, mostly for the nostalgia it holds, um, the idea that that's what got me into movies, mm -hmm. as well as the fact that I still think that that is, like, a brilliant movie. Like, I think that that movie is just downright amazing. There's no other way to put it. I think that that movie has so many things that work within it, just its plotting and pacing, and it's the cinematography looks like Malikian, and I just think it's amazing. Have you attempted to watch it in the in actual order? I've never tried it. I will I sort of try. Why isn't I mean, there I, isn't there an edit of the film where you can do that or something on the DVD where there is um, actually a version that places the scenes in order? I watched it again actually for a grade ten film studies class, which is hilarious because I saw it in grade nine and then I watched it again a year later with the film studies class. And in the grade ten film studies class, my teacher found what she thought was going to play the movie from like mm -hmm. the ending the beginning but it actually just was each scene you have to once you clicked on a scene it would send you back to the menu after you finish that scene oh okay so it was like it was very much like a stop and go process i don't think i've ever watched it where it's flowing uh just as a film from the backwards beginning end to the real end or whatever it would end up um in chronological order that's the word i'm looking for gosh uh some of my other favorite movies too include like magnolia uh, I'm actually a big Paul Thomas Anderson fan. Uh, the Conversation, Pather Panchali, A Separation, Doctor Strangelove, among others. So now, have you with Pather Panchali? Have you seen the uh, sequels that make up the Opu trilogy? I have not. Um, I saw Pather Panchali as part of the um, History of Cinema mm -hmm. from last year at, on TCM. Okay, yeah, I I re I just saw that film about a year ago as well and was pretty enamored with it kind of became a quick favorite yeah I, I love that thing i think it's great <laughs> um so i guess getting right into snowpiercer uh with the plot synopsis uh set in a future where a failed global warming experiment kills off nearly all life on earth humanity's last survivors seek refuge boarding the snowpiercer a train which travels around the arctic globe Due to the train's diverse inhabitants, a class system exists where the elite occupants inhabit the front and the impoverished in the tail. Uh, so before, I guess, you share your initial impressions on the film, I, I wanted to get an idea of how familiar, familiar you are with Bong Joon-ho's previous body of work, if you've seen any of his films and if you enjoy the films you have seen. Uh, this is actually my first go with Bong Joon-ho, which is... It's kind of a blind spot of mine. I know he made The Host is the big one that people always mention mm. around Bong Joon-ho. 
Um, I have never actually seen a Bong Joon Bong Joon Ho film. Well, Bong Joon Ho. Um, I've never actually seen a Bong Joon Ho film until uh, this one. Actually, I'm not really. Some of the stuff I might be missing as part of a of a like a director's kind of a tour type of idea. Right. But I don't actually. A lot of the things I like in the movie, I think, are separate just of this film. Yeah, I haven't seen the host either, but I have seen Memories of Murder and Mother, which I do think have similarities to Snowpiercer, which maybe I can touch on later. But it's just more in broader senses in that I think they take genres and they subvert your expectations and how they play with the conventions of those genres and they push it into unexpected territories. Those two films I do like quite a bit. Um, I think Memories of Murder, still, after seeing these three films, is his best film. Mm -hmm. So I guess with that out of the way, then what did you think of Snowpiercer? Um, Snowpiercer was interesting. Was interesting for me. The first I watched it uh, multiple times before we before we recorded this. But the first time I watched it, I wasn't so hot on it. And then the second time I watched it, I let it flow a lot more. I didn't think I didn't think about what was happening as much. And I seem to like it a lot more. Mm. Um, mostly the thing that, like, the thing that jumped out to me is, like, the color palette. Especially, like, when we go further into the... This is full spoilers, right? Oh, yeah. We should say that at the top of the show. <laughs> people know that listen to the episode. I mean, most people that listen to movie podcasts know that they are full spoilers. Well, I do know, though, it still <laughs> seems to bother some. So yeah. we will discuss spoilers and we kind of have to because this film does have a very interesting and ambiguous ending. And I don't, I don't like having conversations about films where I have to work around the content of the film. So, exactly, know, spoil away. Um, anyways, yeah. So, like, as we go further through the train, the color palette just kind of was very visually striking, especially when they entered the the school, mm -hmm. the uh, the uh, weird propaganda school. Very, the color, a lot of orange and stuff like that I noticed. And then when they entered the steam room and it was so brightly yellow, I, I, I did like a double take. I was very amazed by how colorful a lot of each car kind of progressed forward. I mean, that was that was what drew me into the film the second time I watched it. Really not thinking about what are the themes of it, what are, which is kind of weird in a sense. But a lot of the visual style style was what I grasped to the second time and the third time I just did the same thing. But um yeah i thought this movie was pretty good um i definitely was interested because i kept thinking about edge of tomorrow while i was watching this movie for some crazy reason have you had a chance to check out I, edge have, of tomorrow? I have not seen edge of tomorrow no yeah i kept thinking about how they were different a lot while i was watching this um and i noticed that snowpiercer kind of feels much like a foreign film it really is truly a foreign movie because it does things that a hollywood movie wouldn't do right like it it gives the protagonist an actually dark backstory. Like his backstory is very much a, like a dark thing. It is, he literally ate people. Like right. it is not, it's not like he made a mistake or he's just a, he's just like kind of a scumbag for a bit. And then he, he found the, well, like, not no, just he actually, people, he ate babies Yeah, he like ate, Stephen Hawking's. Yeah. He, he ate babies. He was about to eat his best friend. Mm-hmm. And like legitimately a dark backstory, and it spends a lot of time on the idea of a train, which is what I like a lot about it. It doesn't take time away from the concept to do things like have a romance. Well, that that brings up an interesting, probably the most important question of the whole conversation: Do you like trains? 
because yeah. I think you have to like trains to enjoy this film. I, I definitely, I definitely would agree with that. Okay. Right. And at the same time too, though, I feel like the train feels like a giant ecosystem. And this is the one thing when I was doing research, I couldn't find a lot of people mention the idea of an ecosystem, but it was just something that kind of felt like it felt was interesting to me. Cause I kept thinking of ecosystems and I'm not a bio biology type of guy at all, but I kept thinking, they kept mentioning the engine is eternal. I think, oh, is that like the sun or something like that? Is that like, mm-hmm. and then like the idea that there, everything kind of flows in a cycle, right? And how the, the snow is supposedly melting at the end of the movie and how they keep mentioning that things go extinct. They don't say something like there's no bullets left. They say bullets are extinct as in, as in bullets are no longer part of the ecosystem or the chain. Right, which I guess is relative to them believing that there is no chance that returning to the outside world is even remotely a possibility. Because I suppose if things did unfreeze and begin to melt, resources would replenish that are not a part of the train. But because in the context of the film, the train is the world, whatever is on that train or is not on that train is resources that are made available to the characters. Um, But it's also an ecosystem in the sense that for one person to live, another person has to die. And that's where kind of this interesting element to the film of kind of this generational lineage between parents and children and students and mentors begins to kind of surface. It kind of lingers in the background for the majority of the movie, but but also how that um, the parent and kin element uh, starts to kind of transform into a commentary, not just sort of the cycle of life, but a cycle of violence that transcends through the history of this train. So you have, you know, these dynamics between John Hurt, Chris Evans, and Jamie Bell. Then you have these dynamics between the Koreans and the Russians, the dynamics between Octavia Spencer and her son and Ewan Bremer and his son, and how one act of violence from one person directly descends onto the next one. And it it also starts to reveal that there is sort of a sub-narrative, especially when we get the revelation about Chris Evans' dark past and him being a cannibal. And really what is, I guess, motivating him to get to the front of this train is that it's a, there's a narrative element to the story that is almost entirely driven by revenge on the part of Chris Evans, on the part of the... Uh, the Russian guy who I from what I gathered the his sort of cohort with the beard that dies during the uh, bridge tunnel sequence is his son Franco the younger yeah right is he's seeking revenge against um Nam's daughter so that's something that is where I start to think that there's sort of a overall Kurosawa influence on the movie in general and that there's uh there seems to be sort of a, a samurai element that exists, especially in the case of um, Chris Evans' character, uh, somebody with a very checkered past who is not necessarily courageous in like the traditional action hero sense. No, definitely. Um, I mean, as soon as you mentioned Kurosawa, I might immediately jump the throne of blood. I, I kind of, it kind of made sense, like. He at the very end, um, John Hurt's or um, is that who it is? No, that's not who Ed it is. Ed Harris. 
Yeah, Ed Harris, that's the guy. Ed Harris, Wilford, uh, tells Chris Evans that he wants him to take over the train. He wants him to be Wilford, basically, and the idea that the train's supposed to kind of just keep going perpetually. And that's the, they, keep, they always seem to mention the engine is eternal. The engine will never die. Um, and I think that's definitely seen within the film. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing with Wilfred is that there is this um, – first off, I have to say I'm really glad that they kind of preserve Ed Harris for the end of the film because I think it's actually a pretty inspired piece of casting. I will say that that's kind of my least favorite scene of the entire movie. Yeah, that is the most – that scene is the most cliché out of all of them. Like it is very much the showdown between the protagonist and the antagonist and like there's dinner and yeah, like he's very much like that. Like the like poor – I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to – I'm struggling to find the words that I want to use here. Uh, like a poor versus rich kind of idea. And I think what I have kind of a problem with is I don't think it handles the politics – of the film as gracefully or effective as it's managed to do previously. It starts to, I think I wanted a bit more from the Wilford character and less just kind of an, a pontificating of the themes of the movie. But I do like it in the sense that how it subverts your expectations in regards to the common climax of an action film where this movie's entire second act is this propulsion of action, and then the climax is just a series of monologues that are really used to reveal character development, which then kind of in turn fleshes out the reality of the the people on this train and what everyone's motivations have been throughout this entire journey. But what I like about Wilford previous to seeing him is that he becomes this godlike figure. And there's actually a scene following the torch sequence, which is the best thing ever. Yeah, that is a great sequence. Where they're interrogating Tilda Swinton's Mason and she's like shouting, Wilford is... Uh, Benevolent. Yeah, yeah, and Wilford is divine and whatever. And they challenge her by telling her to call for him. And it does sort of play as this sort of a single believer admits a bunch of non-believers. And I love then the payoff with Ed Harris playing Wilford and how it subverts those expectations. We're going to build him up as God and then reveal him to be this very isolated, weak, manipulative man who is essentially just kind of hiding behind this engine assassins, yeah yeah and his assassins exactly stuff, yeah. i mean he's he really is just a charlatan he's kind of like the wizard of oz in a sense like, yeah yeah he really just kind of hides behind his illusion of the engine and does his own thing mm-hmm. I, I mean i think the thing that was very interesting for me was the idea that the train was a luxury train in real in before the mass chemical Oh, do they do they state that? I don't remember. I, I remember that was mentioned during the mm-hmm. weird Allison Pill scene that was kind of off putting. Oh, um, right, the with the video. The, yeah, with the video, and it mentioned the train was a luxury car before, and that's why they have all of these weird. Like the front of the train is basically just a giant like club, <laughs> like a, and they have saunas and stuff like that. You're like, this wouldn't make sense for a train that was designed to protect all of humanity, but at the same time, the train wasn't, and I think that's part of an interesting idea. Yeah, I um, that is kind of one thing that I didn't enjoy about the film is the, in terms of how it establishes the spatial 
elements of the train. I do I did find it slightly frustrating in its geography and I don't think it really does a good job in conveying this set the scope of the train, how large or long it is because you get these exterior shots of the train that are kind of inconsistent in their own way where at times this train seems like it has 50 or 60 cars yeah. attached and other times it doesn't seem that big and this is both a criticism and a praise of the film because I do think you could easily pick it apart in that it doesn't display how people actually live in the front section of the train. No, it it just, it just shows parties. Like it does. <laughs> but I wasn't fr- frustrated with that lack of detail because in the typical Hollywood blockbuster, I think explaining that element of the world of the train would result in exposition that would wouldn't do anything to feed into the actual narrative. So it would just kind of bloat things further. Um, and I think what is the strength of Snowpiercer is how simple and focused it is on dealing with genre in like a very economic matter. So even complaining about that it doesn't do a good job in establishing and then further illustrating the geography on the train it does still become a bit disorienting in trying to figure out where Chris Evans and the rest of the rebellion is in relationship to the engine. And then at some point they pass through these, as you said, like these parties and raves that are going on in these train cars. And then they're just at the engine. It, it almost feels like the journey becomes too brief to some extent. It's like a very abrupt entrance into the third act. And I know from research they had more uh, cars shot and planned. Oh, really? Like I didn't had, know that. They had, okay. they had more things shot and planned. They just cut them out probably because they were not super important to the actual film itself. Well, it's also like, I mean, if you're going to just stage more action set pieces in those cars too, that is something that's yeah. going to start to feel really repetitive as it is already. I mean, as it is, I have almost no complaints about the second act of this film. Like, the second act is very tight as a film, like, pacing-wise, and just as a, as, like, basically from the time where they reach the car of axe people to where he gets to the front of the train is awesome. Like, I think that that is perfectly, a perfectly balanced, like, stretch of movie making. And I think that that's probably the best part of this movie. Yeah, and it's that, that what's, what's great about those scenes is that it's just kind of a constant series of surprises. You're never on even footing in terms of what is going to be on, be beyond the next door, basically. And I know we kind of hinted at it, but the, the axe battle sequence is the standout sequence in the entire movie. Yeah. Yeah. That scene is fantastic. Like the whole part of that scene, like is just fantastic. Well, it's even just like, the introduction of the soldiers with the axes in that for me is hysterical because they're all wearing baklavas that don't have eye holes. Yeah. And then they have all, they have, they're holding a catfish too. That was the part that, that, that made no sense to me. Like, was that supposed to be a, um, like symbol of the fact that the people in the back of the train are bottom feeders? No, I, well, I think, and this is something kind of, if I was just going to say, and what I, in general like about the movie is that there is kind of a primitive quality to the action in the film 
like it's very desperate and it's very dirty and sloppy. But the fish is an example that I think maybe you were hinting at when you were talking about it being a foreign film in that it's an example of a moment that is very specific to the vision of the filmmaker being someone who has Korean sensibilities in the sense that it takes something like the, the initial image of that fish is used as a way I, I feel to intimidate. Yeah. But what they do is they put the ax like literally into the fish and then draw it and it cuts through a close up of the ax and it's dripping blood. Right. But then the way that that scene, the way that they pay off with the fish later in the scene with Chris Evans tripping on the fish. Yeah. It's so strange because it's almost played for comedy and it's not really funny, but there is something kind of random and wonderful about it because it's such a it's such a detail that would never be you would never see an example for example in a, in a Marvel film. No, you've established that they had this fish. They used this fish to intimidate the lower class. Then uh, something had to be done with the fish. The fish just dis- disappeared. Ended up on the floor. So you call back to it, and that that act of intimidation actually did pay off to some extent in disorienting their leader for a moment or something like that. But I, I think the fish thing, I think that's an interesting idea what you're saying in terms of them being like bottom feeders. But I, I think that it's, I kind of saw it as more just a broader example of in tribal societies, sacrificing animals as kind of a way to begin battle or something along those lines. Kind of like in sports or something, like the catfish is their mascot or something. <laughs> something, something like that. The one thing that uh, that really amused me from that scene is when um, uh, Jamie Bell's car- when they pass through like they hit New Year's Day, and Jamie Bell's like, "Oh, I'm getting older" or something like that. <laughs> yeah, again, that, that they all take a pause to like um, acknowledge that it's New Year's. <laughs> that again, that is like that's what I'm. It's just like the fish. It's another moment that is really specific. I think to the person making this film. Like, I don't know how familiar you are with, like, Korean cinema, but it is something that, I mean, this is a movie that tonally kind of shifts all over the place. Although, like you, I didn't watch the entire film a second time through. I watched individual moments. I don't think on a second viewing I found it to be kind of as tonally unpredictable as maybe it was initially. And maybe that's just because I kind of was attuned with the movie by that point. I think part of it is, too, like, when you know what is coming next in this movie, I think it helps a lot more. It helps you adjust a lot more. You know that they're going to open the door and it's an aquarium that helps you adjust a lot more to what's going to happen. Whereas it, the one, the moment that always that got me the first time I watched it was when he opens the door and it's the sauna and it's that just brilliant peach yellow. And that was what really got me the first time. And the second time I knew it was coming. So I was able to adjust a little better. Um, but then also like the the New Year's thing and there's even the moment later in the film where Nam and his daughter, when they're passing through those raves, yeah. they steal the fur coats. And yeah. it seems to be almost this moment, again, playing for comedy that kind of in its own way, like uncomfortably, uncomfortably undermines the emotional tension after you've just had these series of scenes where – 
the majority of the peripheral characters have all died. And yeah. <laughs> you've got these, you've got Chris Evans, who is just determined, angry, upset, moving forward. And you've got these two characters in the background of the frame, you know, stealing drugs and loading up with wine and grabbing fur coats and stumbling around. And it's just, it's just this image where you have these two contradictions at play. And, you know, that is the kind of filmmaking that I guess I really gravitate towards. And I mean, even within that contrast to it, he pays it off, right? Like the fur coats at the end are essentially necessary. It's yeah, a good thing yeah. she grabbed them. And you think about it, Jamie Bell's character when he mentions, oh, I'm getting older, he dies like not even five minutes later. Mm-hmm. And so he, when he does these contrasts, he pays them off later. They're almost like foreshadowing moments. Well, it's even like uh, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the movie when they take the children, you have to wait until the end of the film to even find be, out what was exactly yeah to 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 be to have it revealed why they took the children. That's something that this movie just kind of does incessantly, and even just con- you were talking about the classroom scene with Alison Pill. The image of Alison Pill as a pregnant woman wielding an Uzi. Yeah, it's the weirdest thing. It's such an extreme image, but there's something for me that feels very comfortable about it in the context of a comic book film. And it's something that is creepy, funny, also what results out of that and the death of of a character. There's just always these different contradictions and emotions playing at all time and it's just like a really rich experience for those reasons jumping back to the children um did you did you think the children were going to be protein bars or without you did you did you think that because that's that's what i had yeah no i hadn't thought of that that's interesting i mean then when then when they paid it off as it was whatever it was like the bumblebees or whatever it was crickets or locusts or something like that Bugs, yeah. When they paid it off as being bugs, I assumed that the children were slave labor. Like, I assumed, I assumed that that's what. And then they were measuring them to see, oh, he can get his arm into here, or oh, whatever it needed to be. Well, I assumed that's what they were doing after they did the protein bars. And even the labor thing—that's another thing I'm thinking of—is the way that they pay off the gestures of Tilda Swinton's hand in the speech with the child yeah. at the end. But going back to the protein bar thing, because I know that's a shot an image that has kind of people have been really critical of what did you think of that reveal of them being insects i i mean i from what i understand about bong joon ho i was kind of like oh okay that's part of the course right I kind of expected that from what i remember from things like old boy and i guess uh only god forgives there is one or two scenes in kind of every one of these a non-japanese like asian style films that is just bizarre like something just kind of out there and gross and bizarre um so i kind of expected that that would happen at some point i don't know if it was necessary or not but it's it was kind of like oh that's an interesting twist (laughs) like i don't know if it actually adds anything to the movie or not well i know the i guess it kind of brings up a broader question that a lot of people are, are critical of the movie for and it should be said that I I think there's something kind of weird about calling Snowpiercer a blockbuster, but I guess it is in its own way. Yeah, can we talk about the marketing for a bit, like in the release of it? Do you, how much do you know about that? Well, about the Weinstein thing and the yeah, that was which was bizarre. That was well, according to Bong Joon Ho, 
it's been blown way out of proportion. That okay. the Weinstein's had agreed that they were gonna run with the director's cut at the end of last year, and it's just the media has been kind of perpetuating this story since then, and it's not been as big of an issue as it's been. To see what I thought it was was like from what I had read anyway, the Weinstein's they had wanted to cut 20 minutes out of the beginning and 10 minutes out of the end or something or replace them with monologues. Uh, voiceover, like, I think. They yeah, voiceover to... explanation. And uh, and then Bong Joon-ho eventually fought for his cut and then the wine scenes retaliated by um, sending it to this lower-level production studio. And that's why it's like was released to eight theaters. <laughs> like, it, it's really funny that you're calling it a blockbuster because got released to eight theaters but um and now it's eventually like built its way into home video and stuff like that yeah um, but yeah I, I i didn't know that it was actually that got blown way out of proportion well i mean the one thing that is true about it and this is i think true of a lot of things that wine the wine scene company does is that they they will get the rights to movies like this and they'll kind of dump them in theaters where they're not going to succeed Anyway, I mean, the movie, I know on its initial release, it was not doing well financially, but because of some kind of expansion, and I think VOD, and as you said, home video, I think helped in it extending out into wider theaters, and has since has, at least, has made, I know, over $80 million. Yeah, at this point, Wikipedia lists that it's at $90 million. Oh, okay. So oh, it's... 83, $83 million, sorry. Okay, all right. So I say, oh, it went up. The video on demand thing was really interesting. Like half the articles I saw when I just Google searched Snowpiercer were on how this was like changing the face of cinema because it was being released on video on demand simultaneously as being out in theaters. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't care. Like, it's, <laughs> it's like I'll watch it wherever it ends up. Like every everything every week is changing the face of cinema. You know yeah. what I mean? But uh, but going back to the locust thing and if that being a broader question were you bothered by i guess i guess i'm only calling it a blockbuster because it, that seems it, it seems to be kind of uh aesthetically synonymous with blocks blockbuster films that are coming out now and it's very unique in contrast to those movies but it only has i mean the movie was made i think with on a 40 million dollar budget yeah. But were you at all bothered with the quality of the visual effects in the film like a lot of people seem to be? Not too much. I'm not somebody that notices like based off a of production budget and stuff like that. Like I think that there's always a reason for everything mm-hmm. that ends up on screen, what like the quality of it is. Um, I don't know. Part of me like saw this as not really a blockbuster. Like a lot of my brain kind of thought about this movie as a foreign film as a more art house foreign film, obviously with a bigger budget than something like under the skin or I don't know what else. Well, I, th- I, I guess it has, but, it has the ambitions of a Hollywood blockbuster, I guess is, you know, what the scope of the story that it's attempting to tell. It definitely is an ambitious movie. It definitely sees itself being a lot like a action movie. I mean, the parts outside of the train, when they cut the shots outside of the train were kind of off-putting. That was my mm. one complaint for visual effects. Okay, I the especially where like the shot with the arm out of the um. You didn't like that. Huh? I didn't think that was great. Um, and then being from Canada, I was like, well, this is this looks like nothing too. Uh, but <laughs> that is that's that winner is nothing. But um, I, I I mean like when it was outside of the train, I was kind of like I was kind of off putting. 
So would you? It's, do you think it, you would rather? Would you have rather them the just not go to the outside in in that scene where they are torturing him? Or well, especially because yeah, like I definitely because the visual of what's happening to his hand was more striking to me. Like thinking about it was more striking to me than actually when they showed his hand out there and like how cold it must actually be. And then it's like it doesn't look that cold, but then it brings it back and his hand is frozen solid and it was. All over the place. This movie also has. Before I forget, this movie has an allegory in which people lose limbs, mm-hmm. like a running motif of people losing limbs. Like that is hilarious. Like <laughs> as sick as that comment probably was. Like that is. It's an up, It's an up city. That's yeah, it <laughs> it totally is. But it's like the running the running motif of we are sacrificing our limbs for something, and I think that that is was pretty cool. Yeah. Um. I saw the visual effects, there was like a cartoonish nature to them that actually, for me, I think enhanced the experience because I think so often uh, in in a movie like this, the effects are striving for a realism as we understand realism in our own world. So, so whereas this is a world where people are existing and living on a train, which is already impo- implausible you're able to take liberty liberties, I guess, with sort of the visual landscape of the film. And then also, uh, how nature is represented within that, like insects and polar bears. Um, and I, I don't know what the graphic novel looks like. I've never seen any images from it, but I did get the impression while watching this that, um, uh, and along with the cinematography and the way that color and light is used, is is very much trying to replicate this sort of pulpy, impressionistic style of comic book artwork in sort of how graphically varied um, the aesthetics are in this film. And like you were saying, the use of color and how you transition from car to car, and it's almost like entering a new train each time. There's There's a certain look to the film when they're in the tail section, and that shifts as they move through each section of the train. And for me, I actually really liked the, the exterior of the train in that it kind of seemed to be inspired by sort of art, art deco as uh, architecture. It, it reminded me a lot of Coors Light, like the silver bullet. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought of when oh. I saw that. <laughs> um, did, is... did you like, did love train play in your head while it was like, <laughs> probably you were like looking for people to be like playing volleyball or something. Yeah. And... Well, I, I, and that kind of happens towards the front of the train. I mean, I was surprised it didn't turn blue halfway through to signify that, any, that the beer was ready, but no. <laughs> like, um, yeah, it was weird. Like I thought it looks, it, the train looks like a bullet train though. Like, Something from Japan. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely, yeah. I guess in that case, then, it's not really influenced by the graphic novel because the graphic novel is French. Um, but I, I don't know. I always, I, I only ask the question because it's something that seems to be a big part of the conversation. And I always think it's kind of strange when people criticize visual effects because I think you have to take it on a case-by-case basis. Like, Snowpiercer is not a visually effects driven movie, whereas like Avatar is. Yeah. So how much they invest in that imagery is going to be different depending upon what kind of movie you're making. I mean, there's definitely some there. There's a lot of merit in that comment because this movie doesn't care so much. Like, not doesn't care, but it's not the central focus. Right? Like this movie 
cares more about the idea of a train and motion and an ecosystem and circular circular and whatever it's trying to say about poverty and the 99% versus the 1%. It does not, it's not really too interested in what that shot of the the reveal of bumblebees being the protein bars is going to be. Well, yeah, and, and also, I mean, it, I think it kind of gets around it in a way that it never it never lingers on CGI images either. I mean, it's very partic- it's very specific about when it's showing you exteriors or CGI process shots anyway, and it's not like they're holding on that shot for 15 or 20 seconds. It's usually pretty brief. Uh, do you want to talk a little about the ending? Here. Yeah, because yeah. this has been this has been the one the, like the two things that I saw a lot of was uh, talking about the changing the face of movies and the ending. Um, <laughs> it's, it's very much like half the articles were on that and half the articles were on the ending. And I read there was a Reddit thread that I read and it was all kinds of interesting ideas. The big question a lot of people had was, is the ending hopeful or is it negative? And then, so Bong Joon-ho himself came out and said that he felt that the ending was a positive ending. He felt that they do get out in the end. Uh, a lot of people have said that, nope, they get eaten by the polar bear instantly. Um, <laughs> which, is, which I felt, thought was hilarious. Um, I'm interested to know what you think. Because uh, I think that the ending, I think the ending is interesting in that I think it is kind of hopeful. But at the same time, if you think about it, it really is a cynical hopeful. Like, there's a possibility that they will survive and recreate humanity. The Earth really is getting warmer. But at the same time, it's more likely that it's not. And that that polar bear probably will eat them (laughs) almost instantly. Well, I mean, either way, I love polar bears. So final shot is a big thumbs up for me. (laughs) Yeah, that's, Uh, that's pretty great. But I like the, I mean... Whether it's a positive or negative ending, what I like about the end result of the of the journey of the film is that as long as people were going to be living and existing on that train, it becomes obvious and clear that freedom was never going to be an option for people. So the destruction of the train, the kids, the youth out in Earth and this insinuation that life has is restarting itself on the planet um it kind of distills everything that we've just spent 15 minutes listening to through these monologues into a world that is just ruled by nothing but cause and effect which is kind of how it is anyway um but i i like the ending i actually think and this is something i was going to ask I would not mind a continuation of this film. I'm not necessarily saying a sequel, but I would totally watch a um I don't know the two characters that names of Yona, Yona and, and, and Timmy. Timmy, a Yona and Timmy Adventures in the Arctic Snowpiercer 2 movie and they're just out there struggling to survive, you know living with among the polar bears and whatever sort of uh <laughs> life has sort of re-bloomed um yeah i'd be all for it that's what i'll say i love the ending i think the ending's great but i think the ending is great too and i think what's great about it is that it doesn't give you 
an answer. Like it is very much up to your own interpretation. Now, when people say it's negative, what are they? What is seems uh, to be people the... are saying this. The one that they seem to say is, "Well, that polar bear looks pretty well fed." And they so is it all built constructed around this polar bear? Like that's where there's a lot of it is. A lot of it is um, constructed around the idea that that polar bear looks not too friendly. It looks like it's going to eat them. Um, that was what I, one of the guys on Reddit said. Well, they they spent the whole Fucking life Reddit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Reddit is great. Um, <laughs> and I, I love reading things like Reddit and IMDb just because it reminds me how um, how in, how diverse opinions are. In, yeah. In oh, world, yeah. No. In the world of cinema, um, and how and and people... no one's opinion is. I'm not going to disregard it as just complete. No. Not, I just find it strange that the entire ending of the film, people are making a judgment off of that single image of the polar bear that is lasts all of five seconds. I mean, and I think well, what so that image is insinuating is not. It, it's not at all suggesting that this polar bear is about to eat these kids. It's it's a it's a yeah. revelation about the hypothesis of Nam, what he was saying to Chris Evans before Chris Evans before well no before that door was opened. It's very much receding back to where it was before. Right. And that's what I thought too. The one thing somebody said was, "Well, they've spent their whole life living on the train. How are they going to make it on their own out in this world?" Yes, but uh, I mean, I mean, Timmy, pretty much figured out how to run the whole train manually by himself. I mean, I'm... yeah. On, yeah. Like the other kid did nothing. He, he was the one who did it all. So <laughs> like, I, I, I mean, I, I feel like they have a better shot than most other characters do. I like, mean, if you look at what the train represents, which is essentially a system of capitalism and this train has been destroyed, it is the death of capitalism then. And you, ha you take the two remaining surviving people who are happen to be, by that point in the story, the youngest characters in the film, I, I think that that is a extreme moment of optimism. I mean, I thought it was positive too. Uh, I, and I mean, I think what's great about it is that it, it more than anything, what I like the most about this ending is that it is ambiguous. Mm. That people are coming out with negative theories about this ending, saying that no, this ending is very cynical. This ending says that humanity doesn't make it, and it feels plausible to me to some extent. Like it, it feels like, yeah, that's, that's possible. That's a possibility. That could be what the interpretation is. And then at the same time, people are coming out with positive ones saying, no, the snow is receding. They're going to make it. Humanity's going to live. Capitalism is destroyed. And that feels plausible to me too. Mm -hmm. And then there's also theories where people say that not, it means nothing. It's just an ending. I mean, we and also don't know if too. they're the only two people that have actually survived on the train either they're just the two characters that we see somebody made that inference based off the fact that the polar bear looks pretty well fed is what they said they assumed that other people were living somewhere <laughs> outside of the train okay to which i to which i said well they established that this winter that this was like the death of everything when the snow fell so that didn't make any sense to me but <laughs> i mean yeah so that was that was a brain dead theory that somebody put out so uh, so the consensus, the final thought of Snowpiercer is that polar bear is fat. Like that's what everyone <laughs> is walking away from the movie with. Yeah, I didn't. The, I, the previous what? two hours and three minutes meant nothing. It's this fat polar bear that everyone is. <laughs> uh, without a doubt, it's all the commentary on polar bears and how they are just too fat and <laughs> they need to lose some weight. That's definitely um, what the movie's about. No. 
I, I, yeah, I, 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 I really didn't notice. Did you notice that the polar bear looked well fed? No, it, I mean, it looked like a polar bear, <laughs> and <laughs> and also if it is well fed, then that means it's been living on the planet for some time. Then I suppose, right? That means there's other yeah, animals there's living. Some more life, yeah. The snow is receding. There's more life. Even if he eats the kids, who cares? Like, it seems like everything's Earth is going to return back to normal. Maybe that those would... the rebellion of the seven that you know were frozen in their journey will unfreeze and they'll be alive yeah, and it'll be all right. They'll be like Walt Disney, frozen in time. Um, like I don't know. I had major lost vibes off of the polar bear. Like, oh. did you get that at all? Like, I I I felt like no. I and I I'll tell you right now. Like I. I was a huge Lost fan when it was on, but that is not even something that crossed my mind, to be honest. No. I, I had these vibes of like that. It just reminded me so much of Lost and like the moment where the polar bear shows up in Lost, and it's like, wait, what? A polar bear? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's what this reminded me of. So, well, I think it has more to do with just the climate in which the planet is and what kind of yeah. life could live in that in those conditions. The polar bear obviously has more right to be in Snowpiercer than it does in Lost. Like, let's let's be honest about that. Like, mm. the polar bear should probably be alive in Snowpiercer and not so much in Lost. One thing I wanted to to touch on a little bit was, um, which I think is kind of interesting and unconventional, is how quickly it disposes characters in in the movie. Uh, I did notice that. Yes. It, it felt like Game of Death in that situation. Like, actually, it, it, when I think about it, it kind of reminds me a lot of that of Game of Death. That it it, it, it kind of progresses like, it, like, like that movie does, and he goes through each each kind of mini boss to get to Wilford, and then as he he loses companions along the way. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's kind of weird, as weird as that is. But I, I really like how abrupt their deaths are, and that the film doesn't get sentimental and linger on the kind of, I guess, consequences of them dying. And I think why it works is that these characters dying and the film continuing moving forward is true to the events or true to the circumstances that the characters are in and that they're not in a situation that would allow for these extended moments of deep mourning, you know, because it is a movie about momentum and Bong Joon-ho has to be careful as to when he decides to halt the momentum. I mean, we've mentioned it, the the Happy New Year sequence is yeah. when he slows things down, but that, it's important in what it says about the characters. There's the sushi dinner sequence, yeah. which is incredibly important in the exposition that it reveals. And then the biggest moment being Chris Evans' monologue right before they meet Wilford it has to have these moments where it can catch his breath, but still simultaneously push the story and the characters that are remaining forward. And I don't know. I, it just, that was something that really stuck out to me in terms of, I think what action films have become now where when a character perishes, there's a great deal of time spent contemplating that loss or whatever and it oh, was oh yeah gilliam's gilliam's death like would have been a five, done. Yeah. would have been a five to ten minute sequence talking about how great he was and they were all oh yeah would have been, we had, had slow motion and then there would have yeah. been throat singers and yeah you know. and they would have sat down around a fire and pulled out some 
some alcohol and talked about how great Gilliam was, and then they would have moved on. Like, it would have been, been, like, a 10-minute sequence that didn't really add anything just to mourn Gilliam. And I think, in a lot of ways, that's where I felt like this movie, more than anything, where this movie was different from being, like, it felt like a foreign movie as opposed to a Hollywood film, because it did things a Hollywood movie wouldn't do. Like, that sequence where Chris Evans explains the backstory of the train, that would have been done voiceover in a flashback. Like, visually showing what was happening. Yeah, yeah. Alongside, alongside him, just saying, it, you get the idea. You have to visual. You have to picture it in your mind, and I feel like that's one of the things this movie does. Is it forces you to think about what happened previously? You think about the antecedent action instead of just being shown it. I, 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 I honestly like that that monologue where he's just breaking down and gave me kind of chills. Where he mentions that the baby was Edgar, I was like, wow, I. I picture that now and it, a lot clearer than I would have if he just shown him about to eat a baby like <laughs> and it's Edgar who would go on to get into S&M and then yeah. <laughs> whip Charlotte Gainsbourg yeah. uh, but that monologue actually it has um it has my favorite detail that gets paid off and it's the cigarette I love that element of the movie that it's a film that understands the importance of cigarettes to people to some extent. It's taking something very simple and usually an object that in a, in most movies is just there to kind of assist, assist in the in creating or sustaining an atmosphere and it's actually defining that object as something. And it's good stuff. It's just good stuff. I, I mean, I, I thought this movie was great in that in that regard. I mean, a lot of his choice of i guess I, I was interested in what he chose to like say was extinct and not was not extinct i like how he chose the chicken and like everybody he comes around with eggs and they're all like we thought the chicken was extinct i, I thought that was hilarious because i kept getting um flashbacks of the dodo when that was happening oh yeah like and i kept thinking okay that makes that that's interesting <laughs> but um i i want to know your opinions on uh the allison pill scene because i remember from uh, when I listened to Film Junk's brief review on that, they said it was really distracting and actually took them out of the movie. The Allison Pill scene? Yeah, they did. They were not fans of uh, that scene. I mean, I don't like Allison Pill, but I think she, as an actress in general, but I think what she's doing in that scene is, it's perfect for who she is and kind of her sensibilities and her persona as an actress. I think that scene is really essential to the film because. Even if it, I guess, is delivering exposition in a somewhat clumsy way using the video, it's still a pretty quick way to come to understand uh, who Wilford is and what this train is and why this train was built. And uh, you get some necessary backstory. And then also, I really love the satirical elements. I, I really like the... I mean, this is why I like the movie is things like this is the tonal shifts that it takes. I love that she is singing that song. If the train stops working or something, we'll all freeze and die. Yeah. (laughs) I I, I think that's great. You know, it's, it's blunt. It's beating you over the head with it, but um, I I like that. It's not afraid to do that, I guess. And I mean, this movie does (laughs) at times beat people over the head. Like, well, with clubs, yes, and yeah. Um, yeah, fists, and fists, yeah, catfish, and um, no, but um, like the fact that 
Tilda Swinton's character is so very much modeled after Margaret Thatcher. Oh yeah, I like, can't believe that we haven't even talked about her yet. I I just realized <laughs> that. Wow, is that a treat? Like her performance and her performance in this. Like yeah, I think she could be the ugliest person in the world, and I'd still be in love with her. I don't. She's I, so good. Yeah, I. I I would say that if even for people that maybe don't like the film, you can't you can't argue that that performance is not. You know, absolutely a blast in its lack of subtlety, you know, and that and that again, like in talking about Tilda Swinton and I think what makes her such a great actress and such a unique presence is that she isn't she like there's no vanity on in on her end at all. Like she from what I know is she completely modeled that character herself. That was what she wanted to be in the film. That's crazy. And that just speaks volumes, I think, about who she is in a- as an actress. I mean, it's funny because there's also been two movies that have kind of, that were released last year that have kind of become movies this year with both Joan Hurt and... Oh, Thomas yeah, Winter. Only Lovers Left Alive. <laughs> only yeah. Lovers Left And they're both excellent in both of those movies, which I think is... Also Very different good. roles for they, in, in yeah, both they do have. respects. And John Hurt is also great in this film. And I would really like to watch the movie a second time, knowing what I know about his character at the end of the film, just to see how how his scenes play with that information. That was another source of contention on the internet, was was his character a good character or a bad character? And watching it the second and third times, I really couldn't tell. Well, I don't and know I if it's a matter of if he's good or if he's bad. It's um, is what is said about him the truth, you know? I mean, I'm assuming yeah, I, I'm like, assuming it is, and there is a scene where he tells Chris Evans, "When you meet Wilfred, don't let him talk; just cut out his tongue." Yeah, yeah, and that's I think that that's part of what makes like I definitely think that Gilliam knew that the revolution was going to fail. Well, that and yeah. I think he knew that if he let Wilfred talk to Curtis, he would use what Gilliam was doing as a way to manipulate Curtis. You know. To prevent yeah. him from stopping Wilford, basically. And there's also a part where Gilliam mentions that he, that Chris Evans better be sure that they have no bullets, mm-hmm. because then it'll, it'll be over instantly. Right. And so, sure enough, they had bullets, and it was over instantly, <laughs> like pretty much. And I, I definitely think that there's interesting points within his character. I mean, John Hurt's whole career recently has turned into wise old mystic. Um, like he really has become wise old mystic. Um, jumping back to the exposition briefly, I, I think that the strength of this movie in terms of exposition is that, is that it doesn't give it to you all at once, because you're you kind of expect that the exposition in this kind of a film, something I, I, something like Southland Tales, I guess, is a comparison. Gave gives all would give a lot of exposition right away, and. I think that the fact that he kind of keeps you in the dark and your mind keeps going, what happened in the past? How do they end up on this train? At the same time as the movie's progressing forward, I think that when he slowly, when they slowly reveal more and more about the backstory of the train, and I think it's it's really important when they do it for the film. If that makes sense. Yeah, well, yeah, and it's a lot of times exposition is weaved in between set pieces. In this movie especially. And it doesn't really become a stagnating effect so much. I mean, the first act definitely moves slower than the the preceding two or the receding two, but but I I do understand what you're saying, and I'm agreeing. I mean, the movie is 
is still kind of giving you exposition up until the end of it, really. And it's kind of, I guess, an interesting, unconventional way to structure a genre film like this. It really does reveal more as you go along. More twists are revealed as we go along, right? They open... They open, a, they open a door and there's a bunch of axemen there. They open a door and there's a school and they get told about how the train came to be. They get told about how the back section happened. They get they discover that the kids are really running the train. And that's what makes, I think, this movie, the reveal is what makes this movie so fascinating. Well, but, and that is synonymous with the nature of the film being entirely set on a train. The only way you're going to learn and reveal things is by moving forward. So it, it fits within the structure of the structure of the film structure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> structure of the film structure. Yeah. yeah. Um, God, what was I going to say now? My brain completely gave out. Oh, I have, I have a question for you, actually. Okay. So were the axe dudes in that car the whole time? That, like, or did they get moved to the front as the rebellion happened? I, I'm assuming that those characters were actually near the back of the train and then they were just kind of pushed forward or whatever i mean yeah something weird about that like <laughs> yeah i mean i i think though i and i know you're like i know other people are talking about that as well but it i don't know why that's even really like concern while you're watching the film like if that i guess if you're you're questioning the logic of the movie like you're you're not going to be able to enjoy it at all because it's such a illogical situation from the beginning well the idea of a perpetual motion machine is illogical like well yeah is, and yeah. <laughs> this global warming device that freezes the earth instantaneously practically and that an entire civilization is living on a train you know and that this train can run on tracks that are never main there's no maintenance done on its tracks yeah. i mean it it's it's very silly but it's a genre movie and you have to kind of give in to those conventions and just kind of accept things as they are like it's not it's also it's also it basically is the combination of hollywood and a genre movie like what well, i mean it's a hollywood genre movie is it's really what it is exactly what it <laughs> yeah. is um but it it knows what it is and it plays to the to those things i mean one a film that i thought a lot about while watching this was actually um and i, I is escape from new york i don't know if you've yeah seen I've, it. Never, yeah i know that movie <laughs> yeah uh in a lot of ways just the kind of ethnic also escape from la i think to a little bit of a lesser extent but just kind of the ethnic diversities among the cast and a genre plot that functions as a political allegory. Um, I think both movies have this element of cartoonish sort of savagery about them. I mean, that that is one thing that I love about the action in the film is how kind of just aggressively kinetic and brutal it is. It is really just like we have to just this we just force. Bat, fight to the front. Right. Just push to the front. And um, I, it's essentially a suicide mission that the whole film. So for me, like it's a true genre film. And I think that's kind of rare. Like it, it feels like a throwback to me to a lot of genre movies of 
the 70s and, and 80s to some extent with kind of infused with these sort of Korean sensibilities of Bong Joon-ho and the tonal shifts and I mean it's just kind of a rare thing to see I think it really is unlike a movie you will see for a long time there's not a lot of movies that are going to be like Snowpiercer. Well, until the next Bong Joon-ho movie. Yeah, the next Bong <laughs> Whatever that is. Yeah. Has he announced what he's going to do next? No, I don't I don't think so. Maybe he'll retire. I don't know. <laughs> that would be just our luck. Um, but that, kind of that, touching on that, that does bring me to a question that I was, that I wanted to ask about in being kind of like, a Hollywood action film that has these South Korean sense or Korean sense. I think Bong Joon Ho's South Korean sensibilities. It is, it is South Korean. Yeah. South Korean. Um, did you ever think that those two mixing together became sort of alienating? No, not at all. Okay. I think that. In, in fact, I think that that's what makes the movie the movie. Well, I, I, I've like, I've read comments by people that felt it was hard, like. A big thing that alienated him was it was hard to relate to the Namgoon, Minsu, and Yona characters because they seem to exist in a South Korean film while you have Chris Evans, who's very much rooted within Captain America. Right, in, in a Hollywood action film and in a very kind of sort of conventional hero's journey. And there's sort of this divide. But I think that the divide plays off each other really well. There is one great payoff moment where where um they they're about to go through the tunnel and Sung Sung Kang Ho's character, uh, Nam, says says something and, and then Chris Evans like, Wait, what did he say? And then Yona's like, You're all fucked. That's what he said. I, I that that killed me. Like I thought that that was great. When I had read those comments, I it kind of dawned I kind of feel the opposite that some of these people were saying they felt in that I think Sung Kang Ho's cynicism really grounds the movie and I actually think I think I can relate a lot more to sort of his indifference towards their fight, basically, at least until the end of the film, where you kind of get an idea of what maybe has been going on in his mind and what he wants to do getting in front of the train. Um, the big thing I like the big thing I have is they almost those characters almost act as foils to each other. How You mean Curtis and Nam yeah, or... Curtis and Nam kind of act as foils to each other. Yeah, right. Yeah. In that, in that, Nam is kind of trying to stay out of the way, trying not to get killed, and Chris Evans is like, "We have to do this. This is for the team," and he'll be in the thick of, in the right in the middle of every fight, and at, at the very end, they kind of switch switch roles almost. Right. Well, one's a leader, is. and one isn't is anything yeah. but a leader. Yeah. Yeah, and then they almost kind of switch roles, where Chris Evans' character becomes really takes a his his character takes a really dark turn and nam's character reveals what he's been doing with the the funny drugs the whole time the like, chrono that he's collect, yeah. yeah that he's collecting the chrono so he can blow open the door and get off the train because he believes that outside the world is melting and i think that that was an interesting payoff that that happened later in the film too this movie is so is it, i i never really realized until i started we started talking today but this movie kind of pays off everything as it builds it up and yet everyone is hooked on that. The polar bear. <laughs> the polar bear. <laughs> only thing that wasn't built up. And... <laughs> um, well, I, I guess sort of starting to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to, any other points you really wanted to touch on in relation to Snowpiercer? Um, I mean, I don't have much else here. I mean, we talked about pretty much everything that I had. 
wrapping things up, how many jive turkeys will you be giving Snowpiercer? I am very liberal with my uh, jive turkey, so I give it four and a half out of five. Okay. Well, I'll be giving it four out of five jive turkeys. So, Thomas, I want to thank you for joining me. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I mean, it's a it's a huge honor to be on this show. This this show is really good, and so I was very happy oh, to. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you're very well. I was very happy to make an appearance tonight. This is um this was awesome. And would you please let the listeners know where they can find you online? Um, so you can come. You can find me at the three places you probably want to look for me are. Uh, Big Kahuna Burger Podcast, actually four places, Big Kahuna Burger Podcast, the Fantasy Movie Pod, which I do with uh, Adam Grover of Pop Junk Movies. Um, he's out of Boston. We Every week we pick two movies and then assign each other points based off how we react to those films. And they're all, are they all fantasy films or? Uh, no, like, um, have you, like, I, I just call it fantasy, like as in like fantasy football. Oh, okay, uh, okay. And so like re- this week we did Neo Noirs and I looked at Sorcerer and Blue Velvet and he looked at The Conversation and Mahal and Drive. So, and we assign each other points based off of that. Uh, you can come find me at the Genre Conversations. The big, the big main project that I'm working on right now is Genre Conversation. Uh, you can find us on Podomatic. We're on YouTube. We're on Facebook. Come find us on iTunes. Just Google search the Genre Conversation. Um, and finally, uh, the fourth project I'm working on, good God, um, is Sunset Rising Productions. I, Caitlin and I are the film section. It is just us. And we are the only ones who ever post on that site. So it is mostly us <laughs> doing the posts on that site. Uh, and I do a bunch of articles through there. So just sunsetrising.net, I'm pretty sure is the URL. And you're also on Letterboxd as well. I am on Letterboxd. Uh, I believe my Letterboxd handle is Tommy underscore film guy 14. Okay. So Film Jive can be found at filmjive.wordpress.com, Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. And you can get in touch with us by sending your emails to filmjive at gmail.com. Next episode, we'll be discussing Howard Hawks' 1964 screwball comedy, Man's Favorite Sport, starring Rock Hudson. Thank you for listening to the Film Jive podcast. Please tune in next episode. And until next time, keep on jiving.